Instead of starting off today with some ominous foreshadowing, an amusing anecdote, or pithy introduction, I need to begin with a programming note. As much as I hate to do this, I've decided that after this episode hits on September 27th, 2020, we are going to do a brief two-week pause. So there will be no new episodes until October 18th of 2020. Ironically enough, the reason for this small hiatus is so I can get more work done on the podcast. You see, at the end of today's episode, we will have reached the 1860s. At the same time, we'll also have reached the end of, or major transition breaks in, the majority of my sources. There are several books that I need to really dive into to make sure my understanding of the period is sufficient enough that I can talk about it with some degree of authority. So a little break here will allow me to get some much-needed reading done. Also, I try to work ahead as much as possible when it comes to writing episodes, but I've watched almost helplessly as my lead time has continued to diminish over the last couple months as we've fallen headlong down the exciting rabbit hole that was the 1850s. So I think a little break is necessary to both allow me to brush up on my history and get ahead again when it comes to writing. As I said, I hate to leave you all hanging like this, but to keep the podcast going at the same level of quality, I feel it's a necessary evil. And with that unpleasant business now out of the way, we can dive into today's episode and explore the political underpinnings of this scrappy young place that, more than anything wanted to become a real U.S. territory. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 32, A Place Called Arizona. The process of applying for territorial status shows the dramatic swing, in really just a few months, of power in Tucson from the Mexicans to the Americans. You might remember from episode 28 that state historian Marshall Trimble reported that there was a grand total of 17 Americans in Tucson on March 10, 1856, when the last Mexican garrison marched south out of the old Pueblo. But the ones who were there aimed to stay and make a living at it. Early state historian James H. McClintock writes that 11 days before the Mexican evacuation, a man named Solomon Warner arrived from Fort Yuma with 13 mules loaded with merchandise to start up a business. He also quotes Poston, who you will remember arrived in August 1856, as saying that Tucson had a few hundred inhabitants, 30 of which were Americans at that time. Poston also said that the town had two American stores, a flour mill, and, quote, some other businesses, which McClintock interprets to mean saloons. The last vote cast in the town, Poston writes, had a grand total of 66 ballots cast. However, the power vacuum from the Mexican troops withdrawing and the looming presence of the Americans was such that in 1856, American businessman and store owner Mark Aldridge was elected mayor of the town, despite it still being a predominantly Mexican community. 
And Aldrich didn't waste any time in getting involved with the first great political bout of the still-new Gaston Purchase, the fight for territorial status. I somehow put off mentioning this until now, but every time I've said Arizona in the last few episodes, I should have said New Mexico. Because following the end of the Mexican-American War, all the land that existed east of California, but west of Texas, had been lumped into the general territory of New Mexico. The New Mexican Territory had been organized in 1850 as part of the Great Compromise of 1850 to keep North and South temporarily mollified. This settled a border dispute with Texas, but also temporarily gave New Mexico parts of Colorado and the border corner of modern-day Nevada. For our purposes, though, it gave New Mexico all the territory to the Colorado River, including the Gadsden Purchase once that was ratified. It's not hard to see why New Mexico was given such an expansive tract of land to the west. Tucson was the most populated settlement in what is today Arizona, for what little that's worth, and there really was nothing but a couple of army posts north of the Gila River. However, for those Americans who saw the new territory as the key to unlimited wealth and prosperity, men such as Charles Poston, Sylvester Mowry, and others, this state of affairs would not do at all. Tucson fell under the jurisdiction of Doña Ana County in New Mexico, meaning the county seat was hundreds of miles to the east at Mesilla, just outside of Las Cruces. By the way, my apologies to anyone in New Mexico if I'm mispronouncing Mesilla. I don't know if you guys use the proper Spanish pronunciation of Mesilla, or if you've joined other states and just going the full gringo and saying Mesilla. If anyone out there wants to tell me, I'd be more than interested in learning. But having the county seat at Mesilla, at least saying Mesilla for now, That meant all the territorial officials and county judges were similarly unavailable should people in Tucson need them. And that's not to even mention anything approaching law enforcement. Malkuntak writes that since the nearest court and jail were in Mesilla, there was very little point in arresting people because it was too expensive and difficult to ship them, and any potential witnesses, for a trial. Historian Howard Lamar in his book about the territorial history of the American Southwest also mentions that any businessmen from back east looking to invest in the future Arizona wanted law and order for the simple fact that it was better for business. Helping form a new territory was also a good way of guaranteeing a friendly government toward their interest as well. Finally, it should be noted that New Mexico had something of an anti-slavery bent, while Arizona populated as it was by southern businessmen and sympathizers, was more receptive to the practice. Because of this, according to early state historian Thomas Farish, quote, the necessity for a separate territorial government was urgent, end quote. If you can cast your mind back that far, it was Farish who, in our very first episode, reported that New Mexico saw the same problem in 1854 and sent a memorandum to Congress asking for the creation of a new territory from its western half. It was in this memo that New Mexico suggested three names for this proposed territory. Pimeria, Gatsonia, and Arizona. The last one was the preferred option because it was the most euphonious, or best-sounding. 
Obviously, nothing was done with this petition, or we could just end the episode here and now. So on August 29, 1856, shortly after Poston had passed through to make his new home at Tubac, a large convention was held at Tucson to demand the organization of a new territory. Mayor Aldrich was the chair of this convention, and all the leading citizens of the day were there. Here we find, among others, Granville Ory, who we last saw helping lead that small expedition to relieve Crab's doomed party, but was now a member of the New Mexico legislature. Herman Ehrenberg, a German-born friend of Poston who had helped him survey the site for Yuma. Ehrenberg, consequently, is the namesake for the town of Ehrenberg on the California state line, though he never lived there. There was also James Douglas, a minor and former chemistry professor from Quebec, and Peter R. Bradley, who had been with the U.S. Boundary Commission just a few short years beforehand and joined Andrew B. Gray for his private railroad survey. It's important also to note that it wasn't only white guys signing this petition for a new territory. Teodoro Ramirez, who had actually moved his family down to Santa Cruz in Sonora, but as you might remember from episode 28, still owned plots of land in Tucson, made sure to be in town to sign the petition. Ignacio Ortiz and Jose M. Martinez also signed, and a few sources mentioned that they signed for many of their Mexican neighbors as well. A mining official, Nathan P. Cook, was chosen to be the proposed territory's delegate to Congress to present this petition. I will throw in here that the petition Cook carried with him, according to McClintock, had only 260 names, but Cook claimed to represent a white population of some 10,000. First off, I love how he made sure to specify that it was a white population, and second off, it's another nod to how the truth rarely got into the way of self-promotion during these times. Their choice of a name for the proposed new territory was the increasingly popular Arizona. Spoiler alert, this first petition is going to go nowhere. When Cook arrived in Washington, D.C. in December 1856, Congress refused to seat him as an official delegate. The most he got was a Senate bill to organize a judicial district for the Gadsden Purchase, but this never made it to the House of Representatives before Congress adjourned. I wouldn't feel too badly for Cook, though, because he was also able to get himself named assistant engineer on a congressionally funded project to build a better wagon road between El Paso and Fort Yuma. By the by, around this same time, the folks in Mesilla had sent their own petition to Congress to split off from New Mexico because they felt ignored by the territorial government in Santa Fe. As part of this petition, they also chose the name Arizona for their proposal. Poston, still on his way to Tubac in mid-1856, so at least several weeks before the convention held at Tucson, actually stopped in Mesilla. And this is important because it gives us the chance to take a hopefully entertaining tangent into the life and times of the charming rogue William Claude Jones. So, William Claude Jones. One article on his life summed him up as, quote, a prevaricator, a poet, a politician, a pursuer of nubile females, a member of a royal privy council, a speaker of Spanish, a proponent of southern secession, a partisan of the Union, and probably the man who named Arizona, end quote. 
there is much about his life that is still murky, mainly because the exact details changed with each time Jones told it. After his death in 1884, the local paper printed an obituary. The historian penning the article about Jones in the winter 1990 volume of the Journal of Arizona History dryly notes that of the details printed in that obituary, quote, a few were facts, end quote. He claimed to have been born to an American father and a Spanish mother, alternatively saying that Catalonia, Spain, or Mobile, Alabama was his birthplace. The names of his parents aren't known, but during those times when he claimed to have been born in Spain, he also insisted that his father had been a U.S. consul in the country at the time, a detail that, as you might have guessed, can't be verified. He seemed to have served in the Missouri militia in the 1830s, though he embellished the exact details of his assignments. It didn't stop him from occasionally being addressed as either colonel or general, though. By the mid-1840s, he had won election as a state senator, and had gained some renown as a masterful orator. However, this was not enough for Jones, who soon began writing to U.S. President James K. Polk, asking for an appointment to somewhere, anywhere maybe to be the governor of the Minnesota Territory, or U.S. Consul to El Salvador, or how about a judicial seat in Oregon? Quote, it matters not, he wrote. Meanwhile, Jones began to amble far and wide, first to Arkansas and then Texas to try and make some money. By 1849, he was in California doing some legal work. In 1853, he was back in Missouri and eastern Kansas, using his oratory skills to help propel the proposed government of the new Nebraska Territory. And it's now that his treasured presidential appointment came through. In 1854, he was named the U.S. Attorney for the Territory of New Mexico. Once in New Mexico, he set up at Las Cruces, instead of the capital of Santa Fe, citing a heavy caseload in that part of the state. And here, only weeks after arriving, we see him joining the agitation to divide the southern portion of New Mexico from the north and give it the name Pimaria, after the old Spanish name for the Pimaria Alta. This 1854 petition, you might remember, went nowhere. And this is where we find him in 1856, when Poston comes through Mesilla. The two, with mutual interest in making a name for themselves in this new territory, struck it off immediately. Together, they would help draft a memo to Congress to set up a separate government for the Gadsden Purchase. This memo was drafted in Spanish by Jones, who spoke the language, and signed by many Hispanic inhabitants of the Mesilla Valley. And it's to this petition that Poston gives credit for introducing him to the word Arizona. He wrote, quote, Jones, who was a lawyer and a politician, wrote the petition. And when it came to giving the proposed territory a name, he wrote it Arizona. This is the first time I know of the word Arizona having been used in any official or government communication. End quote. Unfortunately for us, Poston doesn't give anything more about how Jones might have come up with this particular term. The only thing we have is guesswork, largely based on Jones's fluency in Spanish and his interest in the local history. This is the point where Jones really stops having any importance in our narrative for today, though he will be in the background for many of the pushes for creating the new Arizona Territory over the next several years. 
In a coming episode, we will come back around to political matters in the 1860s, so we'll wrap up with him and his interesting life then. Okay, for those keeping track at home, we have three somewhat disorganized tries to create a separate territory in what will be Arizona. One in New Mexico at large in 1854, one in Mesilla in 1856, and then one in Tucson in August 1856. The next attempt will kick off the very next year, 1857, but will bring with it two heavyweights. The first is Major Samuel Heiselman, Poston's associate and the president of the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company. Stationed back east, he started to leverage his contacts and influence for the project. The next is a new major player in our game and another army officer, Lieutenant Sylvester Mowry. I've mentioned Mowry a few times in passing during the past few episodes, so it's really time to flesh him out now, because he's going to boldly, and somewhat tragically, stick his neck out for making Arizona a thing. Sylvester Mowry was born January 7, 1833, in Providence, Rhode Island, to a well-off local family. He chose the Army as a career and entered West Point in 1848, at the age of 16, graduating in 1852. Immediately after graduating, he was sent to the West Coast, where he helped with a Pacific Railroad study near the Columbia River. A couple years later, during the winter of 1854-1855, he was assigned to a company of dragoons in Utah to investigate the death of Captain John W. Gunnison, who had been killed by Utes the previous year. During his stay in Utah, we see a first bit of Mallory's nature as he started an affair with a married Mormon woman that caused a deep enough scandal that his superiors immediately transferred him to California. Soon afterward, he was stationed at Fort Yuma under Heiselman. Here again, we get reports of the dashing red-headed officer's, shall we say, indulgences? He kept numerous questioned women as mistresses and wrote letters about his romantic trysts in shocking detail. Also, according to one author, quote, He drank so heavily that he endangered his health, and he swore and boasted his way through every scorching day. End quote. However, his time under Heiselman and a survey of the Gadsden Purchase convinced him that he needed to go into business. This place people were starting to call Arizona had mineral wealth and just needed an ambitious soul to help exploit it. And Maori was nothing if not an ambitious soul. Forming a partnership with two other officers, Maori got into the mining game, Eventually, he'll buy the Patagonia Mine, sometimes called now the Maori Mine, in the rich Chinoida Valley in 1860. The realities of being a frontier business owner. No soldiers to keep raiding natives away, no infrastructure to easily haul ore out, the high cost of shipping and supplies, drove him, like many others, into politics. In September 1857, another convention of sorts convened at Tubac, where it was decided that Maori, who actually was not present but already in Washington, should be the territory's delegate. He would throw himself into this role, though technically he, like Cook before him, was a delegate in name only and not officially recognized by Congress. With Heiselman also drumming up support from politicians and financiers about Arizona's fabulous mineral wealth, 
Mallory was busy schmoozing with congressional members. During 1857, Mallory would also write a pamphlet called A Memoir of the Proposed Territory of Arizona. In it, he recounts a brief, though only somewhat accurate, history of Arizona and lays out the arguments for it to be recognized as a territory. Mostly what we've already talked about, protection from natives and infrastructure to export mineral wealth. Maori's pamphlet has all the smatterings of propaganda and that exaggeration that I love so much about the early 19th century American accounts of the territory. For example, during the history section, he, like Poston, makes some pretty bald-faced claims such as, quote, There are laid down on the maps before me more than 40 towns and villages. Many of these were of considerable size. The Santa Cruz and its tributary valleys teemed with an agricultural and mining population. Thousands of enterprising Spaniards cultivated the rich valley of the San Pedro, and scattered settlements flourished at every suitable stream and spring at the foot of the mountains toward the Rio Grande. End quote. He then names several missions and towns that supposedly existed along the San Pedro River that, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he just made up. We, of course, also get the great claims about the sheer number of silver mines the Spaniards had worked, and assurances from Maori that, quote, There is no room for doubt as to the authenticity of these statements, or the immense resources of the new territory in silver, copper, and probably gold, end quote. In the section outlining the need for the new territory, we are also treated to this nugget of not-so-subtle racism. Quote, a majority of the Masilla inhabitants are Mexicans, but they will be controlled by the American residents, whose number and influence is constantly on the increase. End quote. Finally, there is a little nod to the recent crab massacre and the American desire for vengeance. Quote, Companies have been formed, and large parties are settling in Arizona near the Mexican line, with the ulterior objective of overrunning Sonora and revenging the tragedy in which was shed some of the best blood of the state. End quote. Like I said, in all, it's a pretty representative piece of propaganda from the era. In December 1857, California Senator William G. Gwynn, something of a cutthroat character in his own right and a supporter of the filibusters, proposed a bill to create the Arizona Territory. This Arizona didn't look anything like the state today, but instead was a long rectangular strip that covered the Gadsden Purchase and southern New Mexico, stretching hundreds of miles between the Colorado River and the Rio Grande. According to Farish, all of Arizona north of 33 degrees 45 minutes latitude, so roughly above modern Coolidge, was to be left, quote, to the savages inhabiting that wilderness. Evidently, neither New Mexico nor Arizona wanted the Apaches. End quote. However, this bid also failed, due not to the lack of effort, but because of the state of politics at the time. As one historian put it, quote, To northern congressmen, however, Maori supporters spoke with a southern accent. End quote. The bill to create the Arizona Territory was killed on a vote that broke down on regional lines. So we are in the beginning of 1858 now, and have four swings and misses so far when it comes to creating the Arizona Territory. But as you might have gathered about Maori's character so far, he was not one to be deterred. 
he resigned his commission from the U.S. Army in 1858 to devote himself solely to his business and the project of getting his adopted territory recognized. The men around Tucson and Tubac seemed to like his drive, as they voted to keep him as their delegate in 1858 and 1859, and his presence in Washington became almost semi-official. His efforts had brought appeal from Arizona City, formerly Colorado City in some years from being called Yuma, in the west to Mesilla in New Mexico. The New Mexicans of Mesilla were so dissatisfied with Santa Fe that they vowed not to participate in any New Mexican elections, instead latching onto the idea of creating a large rectangular territory of Arizona. So they too began to refer to Maori as their delegate. Although not everyone was happy with Maori or his territorial demands. Edward E. Cross, the editor of the newly established Weekly Arizonian in Tubac, decided that Maori's zeal for a new territory, which included some misleading claims, might actually be more hurtful than helpful. Cross favored baby steps. You know, just a few needed federal officials and some law enforcement, and that should be fine. The two would trade barbs for months, especially after another bill from Senator Gwynn to form Arizona failed in February 1859. Finally, in July of that year, Maori had had enough and challenged Cross to a duel. The two actually fought this duel, each firing at the other using rifles. After both missed, they decided to end their quarrel amicably. Though Mallory sort of had the last laugh because this is when his supporters bought the weekly Arizonian and moved it up to Tucson and thus out of Cross's hands. So altogether, we are now four years into serious efforts to be named a territory with nothing really to show for it. This is when the residents of Arizona and Mesilla decided they had had enough of half measures. In March 1860, Masilla actually deposed all the officials appointed by New Mexico and went about electing their own officials. The very next month, 31 quote-unquote delegates met in Tucson to make a similar decision. In league with the Masilla residents, it was decided that they would simply organize a territory while waiting for Congress to actually act. This included electing a full set of officials, including Masilla resident Dr. Lewis S. Owings as governor. Funny enough, given attitudes at the time, Ignacio Orantia, another Masilla resident and representative of the Mexican-American population, was named to the post of lieutenant governor. To this, we have a roster of officials, including secretary of state, justices, and the heads of the territorial militia. They also set up provisions for a territorial legislature and adopted the laws and codes of New Mexico. The new territory was still to be that awkward long rectangle that was essentially the Gadsden Purchase and to be divided into four counties of equal size. Funny enough, given all that he had put into this issue, Maori had resigned from his position as a delegate in order to take up a cushy government job helping establish the eastern boundary of California. Historian Howard Lamar remarks that this extra-legal formation of a territorial government was really not that revolutionary. In the same year, similar so-called squatter governments had been formed and were running the show in Colorado, Nevada, and Dakota, 
the latter still one giant north-south rectangle being run out of Bismarck and not yet divided into north and south. In 1860, a senator from Mississippi tried once again to get a bill through that would establish the territory of Arizuma, but like all previous attempts, it failed to gain any traction. The problem was the same as it had always been. Those agitating for this new territory were almost to a man Democrats and pro-Southerners. Except now, 1860, that particular sticking point had become much worse. The North-South factionalism in the United States had grown increasingly taunt, to the breaking point as it turned out. One of Maori's main supporters in Congress was now dead, while Gwynne would actually flee the country soon in order to avoid imprisonment for being a Southern sympathizer. The atmosphere was so tense that the man chosen to replace Mallory as the territory's congressional delegate was actually instructed to take his appeal to a southern congress should the nation break apart. What really threw a monkey wrench in Arizona's immediate plans was the November 1860 election of a former congressman from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln. Once again, you probably remember what happens next from your junior high American history class, but here's a quick refresher. In December 1860, South Carolina, feeling that its state's rights were on the verge of being threatened, declared that it was seceding from the Union. By February 1861, six more states had followed suit. And then, in April, Lincoln was forced to make the decision whether to resupply or hand over Fort Sumner in Charleston Harbor. He chose the former, it did not go well, and now the Civil War was really off to the races. We are going to get much deeper into the effects of the Civil War on this quirky, non-official thing now being called Arizona in coming episodes, because it will be something of a roller coaster ride that will see Maori jailed and the brief existence of the Confederate territory of Arizona. But for now, I'm going to bid you all a fond farewell for two weeks as I hit the books and make sure we are all ready for what happens next. Because this quirky little thing called Arizona is about to become known in a big way. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.